And all of us have those things that we're like, I just wish this one thing was different in my life. And I talk about Indiana football kind of tongue-in-cheek. It's like, yeah, yeah, I wish it was, was better. But we all do have some things, you know, some small and petty, like our favorite sports teams, and some serious that we just wish were different. It's like, Lord, please, would you just work in this one way? Haven't we suffered enough? Now, God is good, and he does listen to us, but we can tend to see this in a warped way, and we start demanding that he listen to us, or that he do exactly what we want. And when he doesn't, we start to look to other things to fill up our needs or meet our wants. Whether I'm lonely or stressed or depressed, experiencing relational turmoil, whatever it is, it's like when the Lord doesn't deliver in the way I want, we can start to, well, I'm going to go look at this other thing over here. And when we do that, whether I'm looking elsewhere for answers, looking to these other things, or I'm demanding that God answer in a particular way, either of those things are basically saying, God, you are not God. You are not the God above all, the Lord of the universe. We're saying you're either powerless to do what I want you to do, or... I have a right to tell you what to do. Either way, that's making God not be God. We can even do this under the guise of spirituality. Well, Lord, you hate sickness and death, so I demand that you heal, whether me or my friend. Instead of having a humble posture, where we ask the Lord to please, in your mercy, would you heal? Either way, when we look to other things, and beside God, or demand that God do what we want, we're looking to think, we're, we're telling God, you are not God. So, how do we move forward? If that's the reality of our hearts, how do we move forward? What does God have of us? That's where we're looking today in our series, Patient Pursuit. We've been seeing how God patiently pursues a wayward people, and today we're going to see, again, more of that story, seeing what God is like, but also seeing how we ought to come before him. All right, let me pray, and we are going to dive into the narrative. Father, we thank you for your gift of grace. Help us to hear what you have to say to us today. May we have soft hearts, open ears, and hands and feet that are ready to go and do what you say. Father, give me clarity of speech. Father, may we be humbled before you. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we are in 1 Kings. We're going to be at the very end of 1 Kings, going into 2 Kings today. I'm going to read the whole passage today, and we haven't stood in a while when we have read the scriptures, so this morning I invite you to stand with me. I'm going to read the whole thing. We'll be standing for a little bit. It's okay. Uh, if you can't stand, if you have trouble, that's also okay, but I invite you to stand with me this morning if you are able as we read the Word of God. Starting in 1 Kings chapter 22, verse 51. Ahaziah, the son of Ahab, began to reign over Israel in Samaria... In the seventeenth year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and he reigned two years over Israel. He did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh, and walked in the way of his father, and in the way of his mother, and in the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. He served Baal, and worshipped him, and provoked Yahweh, the God of Israel, to anger in every way that his father had done. After the death of Ahab, Moab rebelled against Israel. Now Ahaziah fell through the lattice in his upper chamber in Samaria and lay sick. So he sent messengers, telling them, Go, inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover from this sickness. 
But the angel of Yahweh said to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria and say to them, Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are going to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron? Now therefore, thus says Yahweh, You shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So Elijah went. The messengers returned to the king, and he said to them, Why have you returned? And they said to him, There came a man to meet us and said to us, Go back to the king who sent you and say to him, Thus says Yahweh, Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are sending to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron? Therefore you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. He said to them, What kind of man was he who came to meet you and told you these things? They answered him, He wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. And he said, It is Elijah the Tishbite. Then the king sent to him a captain of fifty men with his fifty. He went up to Elijah, who was sitting on the top of a hill, and said to him, O man of God, the king says, Come down. But Elijah answered the captain of fifty, If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. Again the king sent to him another captain of fifty men with his fifty. And he answered and said to him, O man of God, this is the king's order. Come down quickly. But Elijah answered them, If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty. Then the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. Again the king sent the captain of a third fifty with his fifty. And the third captain of the fifty went up and came and fell on his knees before Elijah and entreated him, O man of God, please let my life and the life of these fifty servants of yours be precious in your sight. Behold, fire came down from heaven and consumed the two former captains of fifty men with their fifties. But now let my life be precious in your sight. Then the angel of Yahweh said to Elijah, Go down with him. Do not be afraid of him. So he arose and went down with him to the king and said to him, Thus says Yahweh, Because you have sent messengers to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, is it because there's no god in Israel to inquire of his word? Therefore you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So he died according to the word of Yahweh that Elijah had spoken. Jehoram became king in his place in the second year of Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, because Ahaziah had no son. Now the rest of the acts of Ahaziah that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. All right, that was a long chapter with some crazy stuff going on. It's like, whoa, what, what is happening in this story? This is actually one of my favorite narratives in all of Scripture. It's, there's a lot going on from a literary device standpoint. It's a lot of fun. I think it's actually supposed to be comedic. It is tragic in what happens, but the way the author writes it, you read it and you kind of laugh at how stupid Ahaziah is. He keeps doing the same thing over and over again, and it leads to no success. So his foolishness is really brought out in the text. So we meet this guy, Ahaziah. He is the son of Ahab. Remember, Ahab is this wicked king. 
In the four, three, previous chapter, which we didn't read, Ahab finally dies. Didn't involve Elijah, so that's why we have skipped it for the time being. Ahab dies, and Ahaziah, his son, rules in his place. And Ahaziah is just as bad as Ahab. And we see at the end of 1 Kings, he's serving the Baals, but also he's incompetent. You may be curious as to why there's this random statement in 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 1 about Moab rebelling against Israel. What's going on there? Why does the author include this? It doesn't seem really related to anything else we saw in the story. Well, it's because in David's time, David subdued Moab. Moab was a nation right next to Israel. And remember last week we talked a little bit about how there was a sick parallel between David and Ahab. And this parallel now continues with Ahaziah, Ahab's son. Moab is rebelling. Ahaziah is unable to control these people. So he's shown to be incompetent. He's not able to do anything. He's impotent. He is a bad king. So that's what's going on there. Now, what is this passage about? Because there's a lot of happening. A lot happening here, right? Is this... Is this about, you know, hey, uh, men of God are supposed to sit on mountains, or we should be able to call down fire, or God is very angry, or what's, what's all this about? What is, what is happening in this passage? Well, ultimately, I think the key really is found in how the author uses the idea of up and down a lot. You may have caught how there's this constant reference to arise, go up, come down. Ahaziah falls through the lattice or maybe a window, and he goes now up to bed, but he has to lie down. Elijah's on the top of the mountain. People have to go up to him. He calls down fire from heaven. He does all of these things, then he eventually goes down from the mountain. There's this up and down continually. This, this imagery is happening. There's actually 13 references to either going up or being at the top or heaven, the top of the mountain, whatever you have. There's 13 of those in the passage there's 14 references to the idea of coming down, including the fire coming down. So I think the author is saying this, there is something happening here with up and down. He's making a point about up and down. Those who are haughty and prideful, full of themselves, will be brought low, while those who are low and do not see themselves as exalted will in turn receive mercy. Now, talking about the context of 1 Kings, 1 Kings, and sorry, in 2 Kings, the whole book of Kings, remember this is one book that was arbitrarily cut in half uh, because of the length of scrolls. This book was written to a people living in exile in Babylon and asking the question of how did we get here? And so these people are wrestling with what does it look like to follow God rightly? And a lot of the people in the narrative are held out as an example of these people were bad, so this is why we got where we are. And so I think for us, it's right for us to ask, okay, what are these characters in this teaching us about ourselves and about God, but also how do we rightly relate to him and what is his character like? So we don't want to just, hey, I'm going to be like this guy or not be like this guy, but what is God teaching us through these things and pointing us to the gospel in Christ and how ought we respond, what type of posture should we have? All right? So that's where we're going today, types of the things we're, we're looking at. The bulk of the story kicks off in verse 2, and you have this first act in verses 2 to 8 where you kind of see Ahaziah's first main problem. He falls through the window, and he's now kind of laid up in bed because he got sick, 
And who is he inquiring of? He's like, I want to know if I'm going to get better. So I'm going to inquire of Baal-zebub, the god of Ekron. Now, Ekron was a territory of the Philistines. So instead of inquiring of Yahweh, the god of Israel, he's inquiring of the enemy god, Ekron, or the god of Ekron, Baal-zebub. Now, Ahaziah, in doing that, in essence, is saying, Yahweh doesn't matter. There is no god in Israel. I'm going to go worship this Canaanite deity. There is no God in Israel. And God obviously responds to that. Is there no God in Israel? Yes, there is a God in Israel. Come on, what are you doing? Why are you doing that? Ahaziah is not seeing Yahweh as God. But because he's not seeing Yahweh as God, he's puffing himself up. Which is ironic because he's laying down in bed. It's like he's standing up before God saying, you're not real. Meanwhile, he can't even function and he's literally on his deathbed. Now, the author is doing something interesting here with Baalzebub because the name of the god of Ekron was actually Baalzebul, which meant Baal the Exalted or Baal the Prince. But Baalzebub is a slightly different word, which means Lord of the Flies. Lord of the Flies. So the author here now is, is taking what, what Ahaziah has, is doing, and he's kind of twisting a little bit. He's intentionally corrupting Baal's name. So the, the readers are supposed to kind of see, oh yeah, he's trying to inquire of Baal's a bull, but the author is laughing at him. He's mocking Ahaziah, saying, Ahaziah is so stupid, he's inquiring of the Lord of the flies. Baal's a bull is nothing. Instead, there is Baal's a bub, the Lord of the flies, a know-nothing idol that can't do anything. Lord of the Flies. The irony of all this as well, not only is he laid up in bed, but the real God, Yahweh, he could raise the dead. Remember when Elijah raised the son of the widow? And here we have the king of Israel unwilling to humble himself and go to Elijah and say, I need some healing. Will I survive? He's unwilling to cast himself into the hands of Yahweh. He's clearly prideful, and his pride keeps him from acknowledging God as God. It's as if LeBron James came to me and asked me to play basketball with him in a two-on-two tournament against other NBA players, and in that tournament, I refused to pass the ball to LeBron James. I'm a terrible basketball player. You don't want me on your team. I would not win, but that is what Ahaziah is doing here. There is a powerful God in Israel, but he's so prideful. He can't even go to him. So that brings us to our first main point of today. When we don't acknowledge God as God, we turn to things other than the Lord to solve our problems. When we don't acknowledge God as God, we turn to other things or things other than the Lord to solve our problems. When we hear it that way, it's like, you know, that's actually true. We feel that. We turn to things all the time. We are placing ourselves above God when we do that. We're saying, God, you're not real. You can't solve this problem. You're powerless. You're impotent. When we're really the impotent ones, we're the ones who can't accomplish what we want to accomplish. But let me ask the question, how do we turn to other gods today? How do we do that? I think there's kind of two primary ways we do it. The first one is we we try to drown out the problem. We try to drown out the problem. We do that through, say, alcohol, 
or we turn to food, whether we overeat or undereat, trying to get that kind of chemical release in our brain where we feel good. Maybe we turn to pornography or some, some kind of sexual immorality, or we scroll on social media or just endless entertainment. You know, Netflix, yes, I am still here, and I would like to keep watching. Or maybe sleep and leisure. You know, oh, if I can just sleep some more, or if I can just get that vacation, once that Christmas break rolls around, once that sweet thing I'm looking forward to, the time away. Yeah, it might be restful, but is that going to solve your problem? Probably not. All of those are attempts to basically ignore the problem and say, this problem isn't really real. It's not really real. So we drown out the problem on the, ones, on the one hand. We're all guilty of that. On the second hand, we look for wrong fixes to the problem. Those are the other false gods that we run to. Those are the Beelzebubs that we try to find. So Rox and I, we have experience moving now because we moved this summer. And you know, on cardboard, there's a proper type of tape that you ought to use when you are putting a cardboard box together. You use packing tape. If you've ever tried to, use, tried to use duct tape when putting cardboard together, it does not work so well. Your boxes will fall apart because duct tape is not really designed to work well with cardboard. It's a bad idea to try to do that. But we turn to wrong fixes all the time. Whether it's turning to our finances, oh, the money is going to solve the problem. Turn to our politics, our political leaders. Oh, this policy, this leader, that's going to fix it. It's going to solve all my problems. Here's a big one, too. We turn to our own reason, our own thoughts, our own way of thinking about things. We try to come up with a natural explanation. Rox and I were watching a TV show a week or so ago, and in the show there was this idea of demon possession. And I already knew from the outside, outset that the answer was it's not going to be a demon. We just, I just knew that because this is a secular show. But we tend to excuse, and I'm not talking about just spiritual possession, but we excuse spiritual answers. And we define everything in terms of the natural order. Now, God has created the natural order, and we can look to our reason, to science, to other things for good and healthy answers. But they are not the answers. But we turn to those things, and we forget that the Lord is there, the one who created it all. And we say, God, what do you have to say? We don't say that. So we turn to our own reason, our own thoughts. We also turn to modern approaches, modern therapeutic approaches, where we only deal with emotions maybe only feeling better about yourself instead of trying to uncover our sin. There's a lot going on about the self-care movement right now. We need self-care. Now, I'm not bashing the need for self-care, okay? You need to make sure you understand what's going on in your life and have appropriate boundaries. Those are good and biblical. But at the same time, when I'm all about my self-care, God never says, hey, make sure you're really looking at yourself. God says, are you looking at the people around you? God calls us to love our neighbors, and love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. But that's not an excuse to say, well, I need to make sure I really love myself extremely, extremely well. No. How are we, how are we actually turning to the Lord? Seeking Him and what He has to say first. All of these things, whether we're trying to drown out the problem or trying to fix the problem through faulty means, it's like turning to the Lord of the flies. The Lord of the flies. What happens to Ahaziah because he turns to the Lord of the flies? 
You get it in three places, verses 4, verse 6, and verse 16. You get this repeated, repeated phrase, you shall surely die. Now, if you're thinking about the beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter 2, that may sound familiar, because it is. That's what God said to Adam and Eve. If you eat of the tree of, of, of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall surely die. And here, the author is echoing that phrase, reminding us that when we pridefully say that we want to determine right and wrong, just as Adam and Eve did, you shall surely die. The Hebrew is an emphatic. It literally reads, you will dying die. It's a, a fun little construction that in English is best translated, surely die. But it is a whole and complete death. And Ahaziah is going to die because he inquires of this false god. It's not because he falls through the window. God is like, is it not because, or if you look in, in 16, is it because there is no God in Israel to inquire of his word? Therefore, you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. His own pride is what leads to his death. So how ought we to turn? If it's our pride that leads to death, what, what is our response? How ought we to do things? Well, Ahaziah should have turned to Elijah. So for us, we need to turn to the word of the Lord. Elijah was God's mouthpiece. So for us, it's turning to what God has said in the pages of this book. 2 Timothy 3.16 I forgot to mark it in my, my Bible. Here we go. It says this, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We get some crucial truth in here. We see that Scripture is sufficient. That if we need to do a good work, if we need to live our life, if we need to be the righteous people of God that God calls us to be, all we need is, are his scriptures. They are sufficient for every problem. Now, I don't want to confuse sufficiency with it being exhaustive. The scriptures don't tell us about quantum mechanics, and they don't tell us how to engineer a bridge. But they are the lens with which we view those things through. So I don't try to find engineering in the Bible, but I do say, how does the Bible speak to how I ought to do engineering? That type of thing. Maybe I shouldn't build a bridge for an evil nation that is trying to invade another. That would be a good thing that the Bible says about how to build a bridge. So the Bible is the authority on which all other authorities are judged. It is sufficient, but we don't want to confuse that with exhaustive. So, med so medicine, good. Science, good. But we submit those to what God's word has to say. And we also need to hold God's word humbly, knowing that we are prone to error and we can read it wrongly. But God is not wrong. Okay, we got to get moving here. Let's, let's talk about kind of what's going on later in the story. So we have that first act where Ahaziah wants to inquire of Beelzebub and gets in trouble for it. He's confronted with it and he's, he's like, no, I don't want anything to do with Elijah. Bring him here. Bring him here. We're going to show Elijah, teach him a lesson. So he sends the first guy to go get Elijah. He sends a little mini army, 50 people, and Elijah calls down fire. Now there's a pun that's going on here. Man and fire sound very similar in Hebrew. 
So Elijah is kind of making a joke about these captains coming up to him, and he's like, well, I'm just going to bring down fire on you if I'm really the fire of God, basically, is kind of what he's trying to say. So Elijah is God's representative. He's acting on God. He's up on a hill on high like God, and Ahaziah is compounding his foolishness by sending these wave after, the wave after wave of soldiers. He does the exact same thing over and over again like a complete moron. You're supposed to look at this and be like, this guy's dumb. He's dumb. But we do the same thing. When the Lord of the flies don't work out, when he doesn't work out, we start making demands of God. God, you need to do this for me. How dare you? Come down here. Be like me. Be like the things I want. And God responds to that saying, no, no, there's a judgment that comes. We talked a lot about God's response to sin last week, so I'm not going to go there today but I want you to hold that in the back of your mind. So here's our second point for today. When we don't acknowledge God as God, we start demanding that he conform to what we want. So those are kind of the two big problems. The first one was when we don't acknowledge God as God, we turn to other things. And the second one is when we don't acknowledge God as God, we start demanding that he conform to what we want, which is another type of pride. These are all rooted in pride. That pride, again, leads to death. It's foolish because God will not bow to us. And that is a good thing. Good thing that God does not bow to us. So what are you and I demanding of God today? Is it health, ease, comfort, life to go your way, or particular things to happen around you? We all have it. We all feel it. I can't answer it for you. What is it in your heart that you feel like, God, come on, just do this one thing? So if we have these desires in our hearts that tend to become demands, what ought we do? How ought we to respond? Well, we see this in verses 13 and 14 with the third captain. Third time's the charm. He does something different. He sees what happened to the captains before him. He's like, I'm not doing that. I'm no dummy. So he goes up the mountain, and what does he do? He falls on his knees. Again, up and down, up and down. He falls on his knees and humbly asks for mercy. And instead of fire coming down, the man of God comes down. Instead of God's judgment, God's representative. It's beautiful. So here's our third point. We must go up to God but we must go with a heart posture of down. We must go up to God, but we must go with a heart posture of down. So when I I say we go up to God, I mean acknowledging him as Lord above all. It's not like I try to elevate myself on his level or try to get to him on a mountain, but in the sense that I see, God, you, you are supreme above all. And I go with a heart posture of down. So I submit to what he has said, I look in his word and I see what he says about truth and I say, God, this is true even if I struggle with it. That's the first thing. Then the second, I acknowledge he has a right to do what he wants to do. Thirdly, I humbly ask for mercy. And fourthly, I humbly present my needs. So when I see a desire in my heart, I submit to what he has said, I acknowledge he has a right to do what he wants to do. I humbly ask for mercy, and then I present the request. I don't come barging in saying, God, you have to do what I want. 
What's the result? The humble captain lives. Prideful Ahaziah dies. Fire comes down on the captains who are prideful. The man of God comes down with the humble captain. Verses 15 to 18, you see that. Elijah goes down with him. Elijah goes down and brings life. So here's our last point. God comes down to us. God comes down to us. Now, that's a simple statement, and as Christians, it should sound familiar, should it not? Because we have a God that came down to us. Remember, all of the Old Testament scriptures are pointing to Jesus. They're showing us patterns of the way God operates, so that when Christ comes on the scene in Matthew chapter 1, it's like, oh yes, this is familiar, because this is how God has dealt with his people for all time. God comes down to us. Christ came in the incarnation. That is when God put on flesh. We talked about this in Philippians chapter 2, but I want to revisit it. Sometimes I'm afraid, like, am I saying just the same thing over and over again? It's like, well, the scriptures say the same thing over and over again. It's how God is. He comes down to his people. He doesn't say, work your way up to me. Instead, he suffers with and for his people. And Christianity is the only faith where we have a God like that. A God who says, I love you so much that I will suffer for you. And that is a good and a beautiful message. What a God we serve. What a God we serve. This is a message not just for a non-believing person to hear, somebody who does not believe in Christ. It is one we all need to hear because we lose sight of this wonderful and beautiful God that we have. We lose sight of it. We need to see Christ in this way, that he put on flesh, came down for us, with us, that God is near to the brokenhearted. He saves the crushed in spirit. He understands. I don't know if many of you know this, but... um, about four or five years ago, um, Rox and I had suffered a miscarriage. Before we suffered that miscarriage, we knew about miscarriage. We had seen friends and family walk through miscarriage before. But when we walked through it ourselves, when we now interact with somebody who has miscarried, it's no longer a, hey, I'm, I'm sorry, but I don't really understand. It's a, yes, we understand. And we know the pain of knowing that there is a child that we have that we've never met. What what is that child like? I don't know. But by God's grace, that child is in heaven with Christ, being raised in the best, best tutelage you could ever have. And it gives me great joy to think that Rox's godly father is with our child. And that our child gets to meet his grandfather or her grandfather, before any of our other kids really do. So we understand. And God came down for us. And it's not that God didn't understand suffering before. God is the, is the God who can't, God in his, in his divine nature cannot suffer. But remember, the second person of the Trinity put on a human nature. And in his human nature, the second person of the Trinity experiences suffering. For us, he understands. We have a sympathetic high priest who loves us. So when we are feeling 
stressed or like no one loves us or that we simply cannot go on. We understand Jesus has been there. Jesus has been there. He was in the garden. He was stressed. He was alone. He understands. When you feel betrayed by a friend and someone does something, you're like, I can't believe they did that. Why would they do that? Whether intentional or unintentional, Jesus understands. He was betrayed by one of his closest friends, and he even knew it was coming, and he went through it anyways. Jesus has been there. When you're hungry, lonely, tired, Jesus has been there. When you're humiliated, when you feel like people see you in all the ugh of your life, Jesus hung naked on a cross for everyone to see. He understands. There's nothing you can experience that Jesus has not experienced. We understand, C.S. Lewis talks about how we, we, we know what it's like to suffer temptation, but we give in to it. Jesus suffered temptation all the way to the end and never gave in to it. We know a little bit about temptation. Jesus knows all about temptation. He understands us far more than we could ever hope to understand ourselves. So again, our last point is God comes down to us. So God is telling Israel that they need to come to him first. They need to come to it with a humble spirit, acknowledge him as Lord, and when they do, he comes down to them. And that message is the same today. When we read the scripture, it's not different. So here's our response statement for this week. Let my heart be bowed down before the one who came down. Yeah, how do we move forward? What kind of posture do we need to have? Let my heart be bowed down before the one who came down. It's like we bow down before God who said, yeah, I came down the mountain with you. Let my heart be bowed down before the one who came down. So again, we look for solutions to our problems and our sin in places other than God. And we pridefully demand that God do something that we want. God does want us to acknowledge that he's above all, but he's also the God who subjected himself to humiliation and wants us to bow before him, not because we're pathetic worms, but because he is worthy and he's inviting us into his presence. So may we have hearts that are bowed down before the one who came down. Let me pray. Father, we thank you that you in your mercy, came down. Father, may we not have hearts that are haughty and prideful and puffed up. May we not seek to come up the mountain and demand that you come down. Father, may we understand that your wrath is real. And may we not go down on our knees in fear, but in awe, in a fearful awe, a reverent awe, a godly fear that acknowledges you as Lord. Help us to have that kind of heart, Lord. I pray that we would be that kind of church. May we confess where we have been prideful before you. Help us to repent and to turn to you. May we cry out to you for mercy. Help us to see where we have been prideful. And Father, in your mercy, will you continue to be with us, walk with us. Help us to see how you are with us through your spirit. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.